Across the UK, overnights with Martin Kellner. There is a place I'd give the world to see Where the music's softly playing And the rhythm's gently swaying Underneath the stars and the million bars Guitars are softly saying Mexico yeah, here we go to uh, Campeche in Mexico, and we say uh, a very warm welcome and a very good morning to uh, John Bonfilio. Uh, John, uh, thanks ever so much for joining us. Good evening, Martin Kellner. Yes, uh, good, well, it's good morning here, and good evening to you. <laughs> uh, it's good morning with us. Um, now, let's start, we'll, we'll talk about the smoking ban, because I've mentioned that in New Zealand, they're trying to uh, outlaw smoking, and uh, uh, they're doing the same in Mexico. We'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but let's start with Brasilia, because when um, when I was a child, uh, Rio de Janeiro was the capital of uh, Brazil. I think, uh, Brasilia. When did Brasilia become capital of Brazil? In 1960. Yeah. Uh, it was a, f- a five-year... It was the, the, the birth child and the project of the then-president, Kubitschek, who came in in 1955 and promised... One of the big problems in Brazil at the time was that Rio was being overwhelmed with everything that normally overwhelms uh, capital cities. And, of course, you multiply that by exponential growth in in Latin America and, and the like. So, he, yeah, he promised he was going to uh, engineer this imagined capital of Brazil, which he managed to do in, in five years, which is absolutely amazing. And, and it was, became a, a city of the, of the future. Interestingly, Brasilia has now reached international interest because of the big demonstrations and, mm. and riots and the insurrection of a couple of weeks ago, which suddenly has brought Brasilia into light again. Because normally you think of Brazil, you think beaches, you think, uh, football, you think Rio, you think Carnival, you don't think of this strange uh, um, architecturally engineered uh, new town uh, that was built in the in the 1960s, uh, for sure, then built as a futuristic utopia, and I guess really known because a lot of the, the, the big buildings in the sort of planned centre are big monuments, it's kind of buildings as monuments reimagining the possibilities of reinforced concrete and generally relates to this famous Brazilian architect of the time, Oscar Niemeyer, uh, who was at the centre of it all. Of course, Brasilia has changed a lot since then, 60 years on. Now it's a city of uh, 3 million plus people, only 10% of which live in the, in the planned area, but it's still very distinct to all other uh, Brazilian cities, really, because most other Brazilian cities are really kind of crazy, organic, full of street mm. life. But the centre of Brasilia still feels sort of like this almost pilot project where people go in to the different sections during the day, to the banking area, uh, to, I don't know, to to the shopping, you know, to the commercial area and then out again. So it does retain in the evenings this kind of ghost town feel and it's very distinct. But, you know, for sure not alone internationally in terms of experiments. I mean, Canberra. In Australia would be a famous other example. And I think we often forget that Washington, D.C., just it was longer ago, but was also a planned city in the U.S. But, yeah, for sure, Brasilia now, uh, for perhaps nefarious reasons, back in the international spotlight. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, is it right to say that it's it's sort of crumbling to some extent? Well, I guess concrete has a shelf life, doesn't it, to some extent? And also an, an inherent innate problem with Latin American uh, governments and economies is upkeep. It's, it's, to some extent, it's never been 
the problem's never been the building of new things or the building of new projects. It's been the budgets around the maintenance of these. So you definitely have this sort of faded, uh, almost sort of, I don't know, new world. Like, it, it's obviously not a city of the future anymore, right? It, now, at the time, it very much felt that way. But now it feels like this sort of, uh, almost Jetsons e projection to what was a city of the future, but never quite got there, yeah. as you say, because it is because it is faded, because it is slightly dilapidated and crumbling and so on. So it definitely doesn't have that resonance that it had when so, you know if you had gone into Brasilia in 1960, 1965, it would have been a little bit like being on another planet. Yeah. And now it feels like. Uh, the abandonment of another planet, if you like, of this prototype project. Right. Uh, let's talk about the smoking ban now. Um, I, I was a surprise to read that uh, smoking's being banned in uh, Mexico. You, you know, just the last thing you think of. Uh, you know, Mexico seems to me like a sort of laissez-faire type of place where you know people um, live their lives relatively free of what. We in England sometimes call the nanny states, but, um, you know, New Zealand, we expect it, you know, under Jacinda Ardern anyway. Um, not Mexico. Tell me about the, the smoking ban. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is that Mexico, that smoking in Mexico has never been particularly big. I think probably for economic reasons. There was actually a, a, a law passed in 2008, which followed on from the Ireland, UK, laws which which basically made uh, bars restaurants workplaces smoke free the kind of law that we all know about in an international context but in 2000 last year uh, there was this this law passed which has gone into effect last sunday which uh, uh, makes uh, the smoking in or the tobacco laws in mexico among the world's strictest because it is a get this it is a total ban on smoking in all public places so you cannot have a cigarette in a park you cannot have a cigarette uh, in a street or on the beach uh, or as you're walking along basically the only place that is left to you to have a cigarette now is in your own private premises we know that i mean there's some other laws that accompany this in terms of no advertising no display in shops and stuff so it becomes almost an under-the-counter sort of um, product but yeah this is this is right up there with you know the most extreme smoking bans internationally which honestly is not going to affect the average mexican that much where we're going to have uh, pushback on this and controversy is because tourism mm. is huge for mexico so the prospect of tourists being not necessarily arrested but fined for smoking in a in a public space is for sure going to generate some uh, some difficult headlines for the country. Yeah, no point in buying 400 fags on <laughs> duty-free on the plane uh, because when you get there, you won't be able to smoke them. That's, um... No, 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 you definitely won't. Of course, the question is enforceability with all these things. You know, the, uh, people who are broadly against the legislation say, you know, but how are you actually going to enforce this? Because for sure, most of Mexico is public space. So how can you actually stop this person in this particular town or village from doing this? But but actually, I, we remember that debate from the first set of smoke-free laws that came in where that was the same argument that was made. So mm. I don't doubt that it's, that it's going to happen and that it is happening as we speak. Yeah. Um, let's move on to a bizarre story uh, about a shortage of um, people to teach Welsh in Argentina. Now, um, I know we have a sort of history with Argentina, and I know the Welsh do um, specifically. Tell me what that's all about. 
Yeah, the advert, the headline for the advert is Welsh language uh, teachers sought in Patagonia in Argentina. Patagonia being the southernmost mountainous cold, mountainous cold close to Antarctic, uh, Antarctica region in, in Argentina. Uh, and there is a long Welsh history there, which is really fascinating. In and around the 1800s, uh, Welsh rural communities in particular were suffering a sort of a, an industrial uh, depression and they were, uh, communities were worried also about the heart being ripped out of Welsh towns. I mean, we've heard this, of course, many times before. So there were these sort of um, these pioneer communities, if you like, that decided to set off for new beginnings. Um, they didn't start with Argentina or Patagonia. They actually started in the USA. So in Scranton, Pennsylvania is one famous example there. But because uh, American culture was so similar to UK culture, in particular the English language, actually those communities disappeared pretty quickly. And so the, the more hard, the hardliners in Wales then decided, well, we, need to, we then need to go somewhere completely different, where we're not going to assimilate, where we can basically keep uh, Welsh culture, Welsh language, Welsh communities alive in a place that uh, mirrors Wales, but that is not being subsumed into another country like Wales. And they chose Patagonia. So in 1865, 150 people set out on the Mimosa uh, across. They paid $12 pounds to get across the Atlantic, landed in Argentina and have been there ever since. And it's estimated now that there's in the region of four to five thousand native Welsh speakers in the Chubut uh, valley in Argentina uh, and it is a, a really strong cultural representation that everybody there wants to like a unique cultural rep representation that everybody there wants to keep going but the only way they can do that is by teaching uh, Welsh oh, in schools and they don't have enough teachers so that's why these adverts are cropping up in uh, in Pontypridd and in Nestle uh, and, and so on yeah Strange but true. Uh, finally, just um, we're having a look at uh, some of the uh, Latin American football stars. Uh, sorry, football coaches. We mentioned the Argentinian coach uh, last week, obviously the World Cup winner. Um, tell me about uh, Tite, Brazil's coach. Yeah, you would assume that he would be regarded as a failure given that he presided over two quarterfinal exits. But actually, if you look at the context that he took over, uh, six and a half years ago, in, in just 2014, there was a 7-1 seven, uh, semi-final defeat in a home World Cup uh, to Germany in the World Cup qualifying in 2016. Brazil were crazily, uniquely sixth out of tenth in South America in terms of World Cup qualifying, and there was broad despair amongst the, the Brazilian footballing public. And now, if you look at the other end of this, Tita has now served six and a half years, as I say, the longest managerial reign in the history of Brazil. And even though they lost two quarterfinals, generally he is regarded as being an individual who brought the joy of playing football back to uh, Brazil, who brought a, a, a new way of dealing with uh, these difficult international global superstars by putting his arm around them, by being serious and understanding, but also by sharing having a, a shared vision of a project with them, which they all bought into, and, and also reducing the, the overwhelming pressure to some, to some extent on Neymar too. So mm. even though basically not winning a, a World Cup for Brazil is, is losing it and is a big deal, it's actually quite amazing how Dide is, is really well regarded, even though there's not been, there's been scant success in terms of trophies at, at the end of his tenure. Yeah, and he certainly got more of a performance out of uh, Pakatar than uh, David Moyes has managed.
So that's that's another one for it. Thank you, uh, thank you ever so much. Um, we'll uh, we'll look at some other Latin American coaches uh, or another uh, Latin American coach next week. Um, John, thank you very much indeed. And uh, if it's okay with you, we'll talk again next week. No problem, Martin. Take care. Good man. There we go. That's uh, John Bonfilio uh, joining us from Campeche in Mexico.